Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up, Nets world? We're back here on the Believe and Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. Back after a little break from the pod, was on the road with the Nets during a five-game West Coast swing. Obviously, a disappointing finish for them there. They ended 1-4 and four before returning for the first meeting of the season with the crosstown rival New York Knicks Wednesday at Barclays Center. You know, Nets were returning. You expect them regroup, get back on track, you know, try to put together a good performance there. They fell flat on their faces and were blown out 121-102 at Barclays Center. Really were thoroughly outplayed on both ends by the Knicks from start to finish and frankly out-hustled and outworked on both ends. And this is a Nets team that isn't playing high-level basketball right now. There isn't really one thing that you can point to and say that they're doing very well during the six game stretch they are 27th in net rating things are getting worse and worse it seems like it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of fight there is a lot to that goes into that i'm going to break down the struggles on both ends what's went into that some of you know the adjustments that they could look to make i'm going to be joined by lucas kaplan of nets daily to dive into all that but before that interview, just wanted to touch on what is probably the number one takeaway from this stretch, and that is the struggles of Mikhail Bridges, who is in the midst of probably the worst stretch of his career right now over these last six games, averaging 16.3 points, 32% from the field, 2.8 assists to 2.5 turnovers. May have had the worst game of his career last night against the Knicks, was 4 of 21 from the field, 1 of 8 from 3, 2 assists and 3 turnovers, and... You know, this has been an uncharacteristic stretch for Bridges, and it's led to a lot of overreaction from Nets fans. You see it on Nets Twitter, which is, seems like it's just burning to the ground right now. And I understand it because he is the top player. You're expecting him to produce at a level, and this is a guy that, you know, the Nets, if he's not performing up to expectations, the Nets aren't going to win many basketball games. If you look at their schedule, they look at Mikhail's game logs, the games that he does not play well, they don't win very often. And it's not that surprising because they're not a team that has a lot of offensive firepower. And when you're looking at this particularly recent stretch, they are missing Lonnie Walker, who has been probably the best bench scorer in the NBA this season, also missing Dennis Smith Jr. So two ball handlers right there are out. Obviously, Ben Simmons is out. We got an update on Simmons yesterday or lack thereof an update. They said, you know, two weeks ago, they said that Simmons would be reevaluated in two more weeks with this nerve impingement in his back. They said he was continuing to improve. We got the update yesterday. He's still continuing to improve. He's going to be reevaluated in two more weeks after the new year. This is now two months that he's out. You can't really even, you know, Simmons is an enigma at this point. You can't really factor him into their plans whatsoever. If he comes back and plays, that's great. But, you know, you can't really expect anything out of him. But, you know, big takeaway Nets missing Simmons, Dennis Smith Jr., Lonnie Walker, Mikhail Bridges, and some of these other guys, Spencer Dinwiddie, Cam Thomas, have been taxed, and Bridges has really struggled to live up to this high usage role over these last six games. And we've seen him do it. You know, 
The fan reaction, I think, is interesting because you look at Mikhail, and this is a guy who came in last season, had never been a number one option in his career, but stepped into that kind of role, and exceeded expectations. He really built them up to a point where he was looked at as an all-star level player in a 30-game stretch last year, was around 27 points per game on 50-40-90, and he struggled out of the gate early this year, but... Prior to this six-game stretch, the Nets had won six of seven before that, and Mikhail was having one of the best offensive stretches of his career. So this is a guy that, you know, is he a number one option? He's not. And I think maybe, you know, expectations have been elevated to that level based on what he did late last year. But he really, in reality, is a good number two option or a great number three option. And he, I feel like, has exceeded that status and performed above expectations, you know, throughout his tenure with the Nets. And it's an overwhelming positive. You know, I talked, asked Jock Vaughn about these struggles after last night's games. It's the ebbs and flows of an NBA season. He said, sometimes you're hot. Sometimes you're not. You just got to ride out, ride it out and believe that the work that you put in is going to get you back to the averages. And I think that is with Mikhail Bridges, what you can expect. He's a guy that he's going to snap out of these struggles. And when you look at these struggles, there are times like last night, against the Knicks early on where he does look uncomfortable. He does look out of rhythm. He is forcing at times, but for the most part, he's getting up the shots that he typically knocks down and he's generating some high quality looks. The ball is just not falling right now. When you look at Mikhail, you look at some of the numbers, he's shooting 25% within five feet of the basket during this six game stretch. That's just, that seems almost impossible within nine feet of the basket. He's shooting nine of 31, 29%. And that's, you know, a lot of mid-range looks. This is Mitty McHale. This is who he is. And, you know, him missing those looks is uncharacteristic. The three-point shooting was the main concern earlier this year. That's come around. He's shooting well from three near or above 40% during the six-game stretch. It's really just been him missing some easier mid-range looks and looks that he's accustomed to. So, you know, obviously not a good sign when your best player is having struggles to these, it's to this extent, but, there's enough of a sample size with McHale that he is going to snap out of these struggles. And I would caution everybody to kind of calm down on the response. I'm like, I'm seeing some trade machines with McHale Bridges in them after last night's performance. And it's like, pump the brakes a little bit. This is a guy who is playing a little bit out of his role right now and being asked to do a lot. And he is, you know, has done well earlier this year and he's having a little bit of a rough, rough patch now, but everything that he has put on tape and displayed and the kind of person he is, the kind of work that he's put in, just the overall basketball product that he's been able to display lends confidence to believe that he will snap out of these struggles and he will get back to being a guy that can be leaned on heavily. And also once the Nets get, get more healthy, we'll be able to go back into a role where he's able to do a lot of what he's been accustomed to doing throughout his career on both ends of the floor. So that's my spiel on McHale. I think that, you know, he'll get back to where he needs to be. I think with that, you'll see a little bit of the Nets improvement with that, you know, going to get into the conversation did a great interview with Lucas Kaplan of Nets daily breaking down, some of the Nets deficiencies on both ends, where they can look to move on from here and general outlook of the team moving forward. So I hope you guys enjoy that after this quick break. Joined now by Lucas Kaplan of Nets Daily, maybe the new film guy taking the Brook, uh, the mantle from Matt Brooks after he departed. Appreciate you for coming on, Lucas. How you doing, man? Good, good. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, I'm doing well. I know we saw each other last night at a, at a rough under rough circumstances at a 20 point loss to the Knicks. Yeah. The, uh, the response has not been kind in the Nets Twitter community. 
there uh the community's burning down a little bit this morning but that's why i had to have you on to get a little discussion in obviously the nets touched on it in my intro but one in five over this recent stretch 27th in net rating they are 24th in offensive rating 25th in defensive rating not playing good basketball really in any area right now. I think all of those struggles were accentuated and really glaring against the Knicks last night. When you look at this recent stretch on that West Coast swing and into that matchup with New York last night, what has stood out to you most about these struggles, maybe outside of Mikhail Bridges and his shooting struggles, because obviously well-documented and I touched on that in my intro. So outside of that, what have you feel has played the most into the Nets' inability to really play efficient basketball on either end? Yeah, I mean, honestly, this was a team built is a team built on depth. And I think, you know, we can, we're going to get into the specifics of obviously what's not working. But to me, they really missed Dennis and Lonnie on that road trip. And I think that kind of bled into Mikhail's struggles. Like you look at Bridges and Cam Thomas and Spencer Dinwiddie, and they just don't really have a lot of guys that can take the ball handling load off of their plates. And other than Dinwiddie, Thomas and Bridges are kind of going through this for the first time, heavily relied upon ball handlers day in, day out on their first West Coast road trip. And now they don't have guys coming off the bench. They just felt tired. They just felt, you know, I think that played into them feeling a little weak at times, not bringing the aggression they've talked about. And then, you know, month or Wednesday against the Knicks was just a continuation of that. So I think if I had to go big to start, it would just be they felt a little thin and not capable of bringing the aggression that you would hope to see. And it's interesting because I think when you talk about guys like Lonnie Walker and Dennis Smith Jr., obviously Lonnie had a great start to the year. is probably one of the most efficient bench scorers in the yeah. NBA right now, but still minimum signings, guys that are bench players. And when they're gone, I think it can fly a little bit under the radar of, you know, the Nets are struggling, but like they're not missing any of their top guys. When in reality, as you said, both of those absences have had really big ripple effects on both ends of the floor in terms of Lonnie's ball handling, secondary ball handling and shot creation, what that has, how that has impacted those top three guys that you spoke of. Then Dennis Smith Jr.'s point of attack defense, which was really coming on in two wins in prior weeks against, I think it was Atlanta and Orlando. He was one of the Nets' most impactful players during those two games. He had come back from a lower back sprain, then he plays those two games, then he has an upper back sprain. So not great with back issues, but this is the Nets team that has performed well under defensive expectations this season that has continued and even been worse during this recent six-game stretch and missing a guy like Dennis obviously along with Ben Simmons, who, you know, we don't even have to discuss anymore, but missing those two guys has really hurt the Nets on that end. And there are two guys, like I said, I think can fly a little under the radar in terms of what they, you know, bring to the team and the impact that they can have because they are obviously minimum guys. But looking at the defensive end of the floor, I think that the Nets struggles on that end obviously have been the most surprising this season because they're a team that, you know, coming into the season, have all these three and D wings, have a Nick Claxton, an anchor, a DPOY potential candidate. They have all this versatility. They have an identity potentially on that floor. And during this recent six-game stretch, they're 25th in defensive rating. And they're really a lot of the different metrics. They're not coming out well on really any of them. So on that end, what has stuck out to you most? And what do you think that they can do to try to curb some of those struggles? Yeah, I think I'm, you know, we're gonna move past this point soon but now that ben and dennis and lonnie are out like who's guarding all these opposing guards you know you're asking mikhail cam to get buckets every night you can't even really spell them 
when the bench comes in because the bench is made up of a bunch of forwards and Dayron Sharp. So that's part of it. But obviously that doesn't explain away the whole kind of consistent defensive struggles that we've seen. Um, you know, Vaughn's talked about it openly. They want to give up above the break threes. They really want to shut off the paint. And I think last night, where you fall on last night is pretty indicative of how you feel about the Nets. Um, they gave up a lot of threes. The Knicks made a good amount of them. And then they got ran in transition. But it's hard to argue with the results when the Knicks only take, you know, they only shoot 52% at the rim for cleaning the glass. They're not taking a bunch of shots at the rim. Um, it's hard to blame kind of Nick Claxton, the drop defense for that, if that's the case. And, you know, they're winning the rebounding battle. I know they didn't last night, but if that's a main focus of the Nets going into the season and they've been able to do it mostly this far, it's hard to point to just the drop defense. Now, I think mixing in some more switching, maybe this really aggressive scheme where they pull in one pass away off the wings and give up all these threes. It doesn't look good when those shots go in. So I think that that and the depth are really kind of the reasons we're seeing this team struggle on that end. You touched on three things there that I, you know, I pulled up the metrics for over this recent six game stretch and the numbers tell a story, which each of those things, whether it's transition defense, whether mm -hmm. it's opponent three point percentage of the number of threes that opponents are getting up. I want to touch on each of those. First thing that you said that I think really is true. You talked about obviously Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, Spencer Dinwiddie being overtaxed as ball handlers with Ben Simmons, Lonnie Walker, Dennis Smith Jr. being out. The Nets are getting killed in transition over this yep. recent six-game stretch. They're 29th in opponents' fast break points. They're allowing 19 per game. The effort on that end last night against the Knicks, particularly in the first half, was pretty abysmal. The Knicks scored 14 fast break points. A lot of those were off of made baskets where they're just pulling the ball out of the net and beating the Nets down the floor, which can't happen. So that's an issue there. Then getting more into the scheme and what you talked about, you know, it's an interesting conversation. I've talked about this on recent podcasts because the Nets are a team that they played switch. You know, they switched last year. They switched extremely heavily. And Nick Claxton had a breakout campaign. They had success on that end. But then the conversation began to be they get destroyed on the glass. They don't have enough size, you know, all this, all that. And they're switching guards onto the perimeter. So that's going to happen. Now, this year, you get the correction. The people kind of get what they want. They get the drop coverage. And they're rebounding the ball better, but, you know, the, it's a tentative defensive scheme. They're not forcing turnovers. They're not doing any of these things. And the thing that has really been interesting to me about this recent six-game stretch is that they're playing the drop coverage. They're limiting attempts on the rim. They're doing all those things, but they also are dead last in defensive rebounding percentage during this recent six-game stretch. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting thing to reconcile. They're playing this drop coverage. I guess they're having success from the context of their limiting rim attempts, but it's done with the aim of rebounding. And to be last in the league over the six-game stretch while playing that conservative drop scheme is a pretty tough gut punch. So have you seen anything there that has particularly played into that, whether it be effort on box outs or is it simply just the ball not bouncing their way, in your opinion? I think it's probably a little bit of regression to the mean. Like they can play all the drop they want. You wouldn't have expected them to be top five in rebounding to start the year, no matter what they were playing with this roster. Obviously, dead last is unacceptable, no matter, you know, what the sample size is. I think some of it 
is they're tired and the effort on box outs. Not that, you know, we keep you making excuses for this team, but, you know, West Coast trip down a few guys. It's kind of a matter of fact. And secondly, it is just, I think, a little bit of regression to the mean. And it, Nick Claxton would be an interesting discussion, you know, of all the things Nets Twitter is talking about. People are pretty split on him. And for what he can do in drop, I know he's a switch big primarily, but I would say good almost great in drop he's not the biggest body like you'll see possessions where Isaiah Hartenstein just out muscles him where Walker Kessler just kind of gives him a little shove and gets an offensive board and then that's kind of a problem that trickles down the roster because Cam Johnson is not the biggest four in the world Mikhail's not the biggest three the backcourt's not the biggest with Cam Thomas starting now so it's really just a confluence of all kind of the worst outcomes for Brooklyn I don't think if they keep playing this drop, that they'll be the 30th best rebounding team in the league. But I also don't think, you know, we can expect the top five start that they had this season. And it's interesting when you talk about Claxton as a player, because he's obviously going to be an unrestricted free agent. There's chatter about where he fits in the Nets long-term plans. And you're talking about his skill set. As you said, he's characterized as a switch big. That's his biggest strength. And we saw last year him display those strengths. But from a roster building standpoint, if you are going to have him on the perimeter, he's best, you know, the best type of guys to surround him with are guys with a little more bulk, you know, who maybe can guard on the perimeter, but can also rebound down low and do some of those things. And the Nets don't have a lot of those guys. And they went even further away from that with Cam Thomas moving back into the starting lineup and moving their I would say one of their most physical players and one of their top rebounders and Dorian Finney-Smith to the bench. And that brings up an interesting conversation of the starting lineups of how you want to, you know, how they're looking to build around a guy like Nick Claxton if he was going to be in the long-term plans because they're not really putting the best guys around him to put him in a position for success. And I think you could argue, you know, if a guy wants a hundred million dollars in free agency, he should be able to fit around the personnel shouldn't have to fit around him. And I think that's a fair argument. So we'll get into some of those lineup talks before that, just, you know, wrapping up the defensive struggles. I think an interesting theme, you know, you've written about this, you've asked Jock about, you know, the defensive scheme of heavy help, you know, gap help on the pick and rolls, giving up those above the break threes. He's been pretty open about it. You look at the numbers on these, this recent six game stretch where they're struggling they are getting destroyed from three. They are giving up the worst, the best three-point percentage in the NBA. They rank 30th there. Opponents are shooting 43% from deep. And I've found some interesting numbers when you look at opponent distance tracking over this six-game stretch. If you look at open threes allowed, they're allowing the 25th most open threes. I think that's like that's like four to six feet or something like that of space. Mm-hmm. And they're allowing the 22nd most wide open threes in the league. I think that's like six plus feet of space. So they're really not getting good contests up on these, a lot of these shots. And some of that might be transition, you know, guys getting, you know, bad shots on offense, not getting th- stuff to fall there. Teams getting runouts and opportunities on that end, but it could also play into the scheme. So do you think that it's something where it could reach a point where the Nets have to kind of go away from the scheme and live with the rebounding if they're giving up threes at this rate? It's just hard. The genesis point of all this kind of feels like Ben Simmons because I know he's not playing, you know, we're probably not going to see him for a while, but when you think about the shots that go in least frequently, it's above the break threes, you know, threes going less frequently than twos and then above the break, less frequently than corner. They wanted to run this year. I mean, Jacques Vaughn talked openly about, I'm kind of worried about our half-court offense. We need to get out and run, run, run. 
So this defensive scheme with the drop, with the heavy help, getting ball handlers out of the paint, giving up above the break threes, it feels like we're maximizing our chances of rebounding and we're maximizing how often we can get out and run. And both of those things feel centered around, okay, we're starting Ben Simmons next to Nick Claxton this year. Now that now that that's off the table, I think it's fair to ask for a reevaluation of how willing they are to give up above the break threes, especially when they go through stretches with a little shooting variance where they're just getting absolutely killed. But it doesn't feel aggressive like Vaughn would like it to be. It doesn't feel like they're in the passing lanes. It doesn't feel like there's a bunch of length all over the place and they're getting deflections. It feels easy for opposing offenses. So I don't think this three-point shooting is is totally fake that they're giving up. Um, I think it's still, we're a third of the way through the season. Uh, We're not even, you know, what are we, halfway to the all-star break? I think there is time for this to change. And I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if it's set in stone. But I would be really more surprised if nothing changes going forward. I think I think it's about time for a look, you know, at this scheme that they're running. When you look at, you know, as I said, when you look at the strengths of some of their switchability, some of their versatility on the perimeter, it almost feels like this drop coverage and this conservative scheme is, you know, it's kind of trying to play at halfway and play into, you know, obviously mitigate some of their weaknesses from last year. But it's almost as if, you know, they have improved rebounding, not during this recent stretch, but it's like they're not good defensively right now, you know, playing this scheme. So it's almost like if you're not going to be good defensively and you're going to be this poor on that end, you might as well ramp up the aggressiveness and try to play a little bit into your strengths to get up into those passing lanes, to guard on the perimeter a little bit more. You know, will it work? You know, who knows? But it's it's kind of the it's kind of the angle of you know, what you're doing right now isn't showing great results. I think Jock was encouraged by the rebounding early on, obviously wasn't happy about some of the defensive breakdowns, but I think we're seeing that, as you said, kind of regress a little bit. And I think that there's a conversation to be had soon about the philosophy. And I also think that personnel is going to play into that a lot. So with that, I think we should transition to some lineup talk because Obviously, like I said, Cam Thomas moves into the starting lineup. Dorian Finney-Smith moves out. Nets are now running with a backcourt duo of Spencer Dinwiddie and Cam Thomas, who are not high-level defensively, to put it nicely. And then they're running with a backline of Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Nick Claxton, who it sounds great defensively because you got a guy, Mikhail Bridges, who has been hyped up as one of the better perimeter defenders in the league, an anchor in Nick Claxton, who was up there last year, Cam Johnson, a 6'8 guy who could switch, but all very slight, obviously, not a lot of bulk there. We saw their struggles guarding Julius Randle last night and some other guys on the Knicks, and I think it gets to a conversation of, are we able to roll with this unit with the lack of toughness, the lack of strength, the lack of rebounding, all of these things, and it gets into an interesting conversation that I touched on when Cam Thomas came back into the starting lineup after his first game back from that ankle injury of whatever player you bring in, there's going to cause problems. Whatever player you bring out, there's going to cause problems. And Nick Claxton and Mikhail Bridges are locked into the starting lineup. Those guys aren't going anywhere. So it really gets to the four of Spencer Dinwiddie, Cam Thomas, Dorian Finney-Smith, and Cam Johnson. One of those guys has to be the odd man out. It's been Dorian Finney-Smith right now but we've seen some drawbacks of that. And even with Finney Smith's individual stats, it was, you know, it wasn't surprising. It felt like politics wise, it was the most likely decision because Cam Johnson just signed a four-year $95 million contract. 
But Finney Smith was on an absolute heater before he got moved out of that starting lineup. He was shooting 45% from three on six attempts per game in 17 games as a starter. In eight games since he's moved to the bench, he's down to 36.7% on 3.7 attempts per game. So whether there's a correlation there is up for debate, but we've seen that regression. We've seen some regression in terms of rebounding, physicality defensively. Do you feel like he's a guy that could come back into the starting lineup? And if so, is there somebody else to move out that makes sense? Or you know, are the Nets just in a really tough position right now? They are in a tough position because, you know, if you want to talk about the switching defense, they can't do it with this starting lineup, you know. I mean, as much as Dinwiddie being a 6'5 point guard is great, him on Julius Randle last night, the Knicks would act to try to procure that, procure that switch sometimes, and it was it was food for Randle. And you add in Cam Thomas to the starting lineup, I mean, we'll talk about what he brings, which is a lot offensively, but you can't run this heavy switching lineup with that backcourt. And worse yet, you can't make a lot of the more complicated rotations with that backcourt. I mean, we saw, forget switching, we saw in the Golden State game where Golden State would run a high pick and roll, right? And the ball would get reversed to the weak side or the strong side with a wing in a corner. And the Nets, for one of the first times all year, would try to X that out. And where the corner, the guy guarding the corner runs up to the wing to close out. And the guy who, who had helped off the wing goes to the corner, forming an X. And they just couldn't do it. I think it was Cam Thomas involved both times where he either was late or there was a miscommunication with Dinwiddie or Cam Johnson, whoever it was. And they kind of, you know, put the kibosh on that strategy at that point in time. So you're giving up a lot on defense with this starting lineup. Now, I will say, I know I wrote that Cam Thomas to the bench article, which is not very popular. He's catching and shooting threes the last few games like this. He's showing a willingness to not really be a ball stopper, you know, maintain advantages, shooting well from three. That's great. That's a real argument to keep him in the starting lineup. As you said, there's no easy solution. No matter what you do with him or Dorian, I think you're just giving up a lot. I think Cam Johnson's kind of locked into that starting lineup. A lot of it is for po political reasons, but also, you know, just a six, 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 seven guy that is a decent to plus defender that can space the floor. He provides value just by existing. And I don't really think this lineup is feasible without Dinwiddie to take on the bulk of playmaking decisions. So it's whatever you really want to throw between Camp Thomas and Dorian Finney-Smith out the window. You know, what weakness are you trying to minimize? Yeah, and it is really such a, a difficult conversation because there is a political aspect to it, as both of us just said. And when you're looking at, you know, Cam Thomas is a guy who is top scorer on the roster right now. I don't think there's really any debate about that, especially given Mikhail Bridges's recent stretch. So he's a guy that feels like he is locked into the starting lineup. It doesn't feel like after this decision to move him back in that he's going to be going out. So that really brings yeah. it down to, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie, Cam Johnson, and Dorian Finney-Smith. If you're looking at Dinwiddie, he's the guy that people, you know, obviously he was coming off the bench part of earlier the year. That was, you know, some of the initial thought process. And people maybe thought that that was the direction it should go. He's 30 years old. He's an expiring contract. He's not going to be in the long-term plans. I've said this extensively, repeatedly, since Ben Simmons has gone down. This offense really can't function without Spencer Dinwiddie. He's a guy that, for all his struggles, I thought he was – pretty horrendous last night 
and I thought that he played a poor game. But overall, he's got it since Ben Simmons has gone down. He's top 15 in the NBA in assists. I looked up these numbers before the game yesterday. He's at 7.5 assists per game since Ben Simmons went down. Among There's 15 NBA players who are averaging seven or more assists during that time. He ranks third in assist to turnover ratio among those players. So he's facilitating the ball at a high level. His efficiency as a scorer has left something to be desired, but they need him to pass the ball. And he's a guy that's over seven assists a game, not turning the ball over. If you take him out of this lineup, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of Nets Twitter wants to just give the ball to Cam Thomas, let him cook, let him do all this and that. And I understand it because he's such a tantalizing young player at times. He's not a high-level facilitator. He's not to the, you know, can he grow? Is he looking to do it a little more? Yes, I would say, but he's not a good facilitator. I would even say an average facilitator at this point. So it gets to this place of what you're gonna do. You know, I, I pulled up some numbers on Thomas. You know, he's this season, he has the highest usage on the team, 29.7% for cleaning the glass. That's 91st percentile among NBA players. He has the lowest assist percentage on the team. That's 12.6%. That's the 11th percentile among NBA players. So, you know. And, yeah, and part of it is in that starting lineup, There was there's still too many plays like this where it was in the second quarter, he catches the ball on the wing. And the extra pass to Dorian is open in the corner for yeah. an open corner three. On the right side. I remember the yeah. exact way. Yeah. Uh, people should go look this up. And it's easy to find because he takes a pump fake. He takes a dribble. Then he realizes he's supposed to make that extra pass. Gets it to the corner too late. The defense is already recovered. Dorian gives it back to him. And then Cam Thomas isos and misses, I think, like, a, you know, an 18-foot turnaround. Like one of those grenades late in the shot clock. He yeah. gets out. But it's because there was a missed advantage on that yeah. opportunity. That I think that's a theme with – no, it's not just Cam. I, no. To me, he's the most glaring one. But there's just – that's why I feel like – I think it was glaring in the game. I think last – if you go back and watch the film from yesterday's game, I think it was a great example of what I'm talking about right now. But how why you can't take Spencer Dimwitty out of this lineup? Because there's yep. just so many guys of – they're a half second late to read these advantages and they miss those opening for those passes. And then the advantage is gone. And this isn't a team that has enough offensive pop to really overcompensate for that. So, you know, it all goes back to taking Spencer Dinwiddie out of the lineup, in my opinion, just isn't an option. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to keep Cam Thomas in the starting five with Dinwiddie, because he's the best scorer and all those things that has its effects defensively. And, you know, it just, it, it creates a lot of issues for this team. So, you know, uh, yeah. I don't think that they're going to take him out to your point. Sorry to interrupt you there, but it's not a good look, you know, for a coach to put a third year player scoring 24 a game in the starting lineup and then yank him out after five they're, games. They're, he, they're, they're not going to do that. Yeah. And he's not even like, you know, I'm bagging on him or whatever. He's not like the reason, you know, he's not the reason they're not playing well. Like Mikhail Bridges just went, what, three for 20. It's not a good look. He's not going to do it. Dorian's a professional, but for all the reasons you said, I think Spencer did what he's locked in there. I mean, there's so many nights, the guy sleepwalks to 17, nine assists and two turnovers. And to, to clarify, don't want anybody coming at me. This is no way like an indictment of Cam Thomas during this recent, you know, um, six game stretch. Obviously he scored 41 against Golden yeah. State, did whatever he did against Utah, kept them in that game for as long as he could. He's a, you know, a budding offensive player who has extreme upside as a scorer, but it's just more so it's not an indictment of his him as a player. It's his fit 
on this team, which I think goes into some things that, you know, some decisions that Jock Vaughn has made in the past, but just, you know, tying a bow on the Thomas end of it, when you're talking about some of those missed passes and some of those opportunities that he might not see, you know, I think a lot of that sometimes just comes down to height. You know, he's a short guy. And when you look at some of these passes, he's getting blitzed a lot in the pick and roll. We saw Atlanta make that adjustment when they played there. And he had a really, he probably was worst game of the season that year. There's a lot of plays where he's getting blitzed in these pick and rolls. And he's, he's, whether he's driving or whether he's getting blitzed, he's just has difficulty seeing that short roll guy, the shake man lifting up on a pick and roll. Like he just yep. he can't always see those passes. And I think that that is, some of it's a mindset, obviously, because he is a score first guy, but it's also there's a physical limitation of him just being a shorter guy. You look at a guy like Spencer Dimwitty, who's six five, six six. You can how often do you see Dimwitty going over the top of blitzes and making that passes to the short roll? Yeah, over the head, whipping a hook pass across to the shake man or to the guy in the corner. So it's there's some physical limitations there, you know. And then defensively with Cam, I think he's made improvements this year as an on-ball defender. And I think that that's the that's the area that's most often noticed defensively. When you talk about his defensive struggles this year, and I think there were a few pretty poor sequences yesterday, it's more so off ball for him. And yeah. it's also Dinwiddie does the same thing. You know, Dinwiddie, yeah. if not worse defensively, but Dinwiddie brings that that uh, facilitation on the offensive end. So it's a difficult conversation. It seems like those two are locked into the starting lineup for the reasons that we both just outlined it's going to hurt them defensively. It's going to make it really difficult for them to take advantage of Nick Claxton's best skill, which is being a switch guy on the perimeter. But now getting into the conversation of it really turns into a Cam Johnson versus Dorian Finney-Smith. And we outlined the political aspect of it because Cam Johnson just signed a $95 million contract extension. I can't see them moving him to the bench, but I think there is a real argument to be made especially prior to last night because Cam was struggling in a big way shooting the basketball last night had, he was the best net by far last night, really the only net that came to play in my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith was on a heater to start the season. So we may be seeing some rose colored glasses through some rose colored glasses of the lens of Dorian Finney-Smith being a 45% three point shooter, which on high volume, which just really isn't the case. But in your opinion, Setting aside what what's going to happen, politics aside, do you think that there's a legitimate argument that Dorian Finney-Smith should be in this starting lineup over a guy like Cam Johnson? I don't. I I I I can't really get there just because you're not really infusing the bench with a lot of shot creation because Cam Johnson is not that type of player. But at the same time, he's much more adept at being a catch and shoot guy and attacking those closeouts. Like I know he's not creating from a standstill, but he has played better and he can play better than what he showed on that road trip. And even last night in the first half against the Knicks, he hit three threes, but he also had two plays where he caught aggressive closeout one, two to the rim, like make something happen. You know, he doesn't have tunnel vision. I think he's just a lot better than Dorian Finney Smith off the dribble there attacking closeouts where if you're not, putting shot creation on the bench and helping them offensively, then I don't really see the argument. Um, Dorian Finney-Smith, great defender, probably has played his best ball of his career, I think, to start this season. You know, moonlighted as a small ball five, good in secondary rim protection at times this year. But I don't think that individual defensive, 
you know, upgrade is massive enough to make the switch off the bench. Honestly, the best argument might be splitting Dorian and Royce up. Like that would be the best argument to put DFS in the starting lineup because then, you know, you split those two guys up, you're better defenders, catch and shoot, you know, low usage wings. But um, I don't, I don't think they go in that direction. I also don't think it would be really best for Cam Johnson, who we all know is locked in as a, as a part of this franchise, unless someone blows them away with a trade offer. And, you know, I know, Leaps like the one Mikhail Bridges made last year and is making this year prior to that stretch, they're uncommon for 27, 28 year olds, but it doesn't mean that Cam Johnson won't get better at all. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm, I'm assuming you would probably agree with the low likelihood, at least of that. I'd agree with the low likelihood. And I, I do agree with, I agree with the thought process. Like I do think it's the right decision to keep Cam Johnson in the starting lineup because mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about a team that lacks offensive pop and firepower. And I think a lot of this conversation, as I said, has has been, you know, undertaken through the lens of Dorian being a 40 plus percent three point shooter, which he is a good three point shooter. I think he shot a little bit over his head to start the year. So from that perspective, like Cam Johnson had a cold stretch prior to that Knicks game and he wasn't you know, playing up to expectations, missed all of training camp, then missed the first uh, what was it? Eight of the first nine games of the season. So really was working himself back into shape and getting back in a rhythm. And if you're talking about it from an offensive perspective, um, he is a much better shooter in my opinion than Dorian Finney Smith. And while Dorian actually like showed some, you know, attacking closeout and putting the ball on the ground and finishing right. around the rim, like the first week of the season, we we're like, Oh wow. Like is Dorian going to be like, blowing past closeouts and finishing over like bigs at the rim. We were like, Oh, he's going to do this. So I think all of that, if you take a step back from all that and you look at it from the perspective of Cam being a better shooter, I would think I would say fairly significantly better. And also while he's not great putting the ball on the floor, I think he's significantly better than Dorian Finney Smith. It can do some more in transition or just being a secondary shot creator. So from that offensive perspective, I totally see it. And then I agree with what you said of, maybe Dorian's defensive impact not outweighing that offensive um yeah that offensive difference but it's just really tough for me because when I look at this net starting five they're lacking toughness they're lacking size they're lacking that dog mentality I know it, like these are all cliches and people might roll their eyes and it's tough because you know we're talking about a lot of numbers these aren't things that are necessarily quantifiable all the time but a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith, like there was a play at the end of the game last night that I tweeted out. The Nets are down 20 points. A lot of guys are sleepwalking. He gets the ball and attacks a closeout and dunks over Isaiah Hartenstein at the rim. And like, you know, wasn't talking trash because you don't do that when you're 20, but like a little bit of an attitude and a little bit of a statement of like, come on, like, you know, we're better than this. And I think that this starting five, they need that. I mean, they're a team that looks like, I think it was evident on this road trip in that second half against Utah at points early in that Knicks game with their transition defense and some things, they might be tired, but you know, they're missing guys, injuries, tired, like nobody cares. It's like, I mean, like, it's like a Bronx tale. Have you ever seen that movie? Nobody cares. Like, yeah, nobody cares. Yeah. Like it's, it's, and I think just having a guy like Dorian in that lineup, I think we saw it earlier this year. Also Dennis Smith Jr. Coming off the bench it brings a lot to that unit. So I've always been of the mindset that it matters more who's closing games than who's starting games. But I think that is kind of the same conversation because 
you're kind of having issues with bringing any of those guys out of the closing lineups the same way that you are a starting lineup. But I think Dorian brings something to this team that would be of a lot of use on the defensive end and just bring in overall mindset and mentality. Yeah. I think he'll continue to come off the bench, but you know, it's Jock Vaughn's in a difficult spot right now. And I think that he recognized that when Cam Thomas came back from that injury, when he, came, you know, he let him come off the bench in that first game back, but it's uh, he eventually obviously recognized that Cam's the best scorer and that he should be out there in the starting lineup, but it's not going to get easier moving forward in terms of those decision-making. I think getting those guys back from the bench will boost that unit and maybe make things look a little bit better just from them being able to get back to having one of the better bench units in the league. But yeah, yeah you know, any, anything else that you want to touch on before we get going here about changes the Nets could make or things that you expect moving forward? Yeah, I think what you said on Dorian was kind of the impetus for me questioning at least or bringing up the debate of the Cam Thomas versus Dorian starting role. But beyond that, I would just say they're what, 13 and 14 right now. They've just gone through a very tough stretch, but a stretch that a lot of NBA teams go through. You go out West, you go on a road trip, you play some good teams, your your depth really takes a hit. There's a couple injuries happening at once. This is about what we expected of Nets, you know? I mean, good stretches are going to follow bad stretches. They were not going to win 50 games. I don't think anybody really anticipated that. 45, as I mentioned, was probably the high-end outcome. And that's not out of the question. I mean, if you look at their schedule, right, they play the Nuggets Friday. They go Pistons, Pistons, Bucks, Wizards, and then the new year, Thunder, Pelicans, Rockets, Thunder, and then Blazers, Cavs, Heat, Blazers. And in the middle of that is the the Cavs game is the Paris game where they play. They have to travel to Paris, but they play one game in eight days. Yep. It's going yep. to get a little easier, going to get some guys back. If you look at the big picture based on the tough stretch, whatever, they're not really underperforming expectations by all that much, if at all. You know, it's important to keep in mind that Mikhail Bridges showed a lot of growth before this recent shooting slump, which, you know, I think even your most dire pessimist would assume he's going to get out of. Cam Thomas is growing, you know, Dinwiddie's played well. There, there's the, the, I wouldn't say we're at, you know, DEFCON one or DEFCON three or DEFCON five, any of them, like it's going to be okay. That's really my take as a guy that didn't really think the Nets would get to 40 wins. I've kind of changed my mind on that, but I really don't think there's a lot of cause for panic. You know, we're just in the midst of one of, one of those stretches every team goes through, man. And it, it is tough to watch when it's happening. It's very tough to watch. It's going to be okay. That's going to that's gonna be the promo clip that I yeah. take from Lucas Kaplan and throw on Nets Twitter to try to extinguish some of the fires. You, you, come out, you come out of that game last night and you go on Twitter and, you know, it's probably just better to ignore it, but I have to go on there for posts of my work. You know, I scroll through a little bit and mm-hmm. you got Mikhail Bridges trade machines. You got, you know, Jock Vaughn should be fired. You got the Nets should be rebuilding and the Nets should be doing this. And it's like, the worst time to evaluate your team is after a loss to a crosstown rival that's caps off a one in five stretch when you're pl- top yeah. five having the worst shooting stretch of his career. And like you said, like I think I think it's fair to criticize the Nets because I think yeah. they've been a little soft over this recent one in five stretch and they've dropped some games that they shouldn't be dropping. And then games that maybe you expect them to drop, they should be more competitive in. So I think that's fair to criticize them. But like you said, they're one game under 500. 
They played like a decently difficult schedule early this year. I saw a, a table the other day that they've probably been the, I think it said they were the sixth most impacted by injuries early this year. And I don't think there's really any, you know, denying that. So if you're taking a step back and you're looking at where they're at, they're one game under 500. They've had poor injury luck. You know, Mikhail Bridges had was playing really, really high-level basketball before these recent struggles. Cam Thomas went from being a guy that people were saying, we don't know if he's going to be in the rotation, to people saying, we shouldn't trade him for Donovan Mitchell, that this guy's going to be an all-star. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but I would say that I think you're taking it from like a 3,000-level view. I think the Nets are kind of on track for what you would have expected them to be, and I think there's a decent argument to say that they could they've exceeded it in some regards. So everybody, take a deep breath listen to Lucas's words and let his voice kind of calm you down. And, uh, you know, we'll see where they go with this, with this stretch coming up, but really appreciate you for hopping on with me, man. You know, tell everybody where they can find your work so they can see all your stuff. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. It's just my name, L U C S Kaplan with a K on Twitter. Oh, there's a uh, underscore at the end of that, but yeah, you look it up, it'll come up. Um, I write for nets daily and then occasionally I write, for swish theory about more general NBA stuff. I just wrote about um, Jalen Johnson and Trace Jackson Davis. And then Jalen got hurt, which sucked, but yeah. So yeah. Twitter easiest place to find me or nets daily. If you want to read that stuff, but I appreciate you, Eric, for having me on. Always good to talk some nets. All right, man. We'll see you soon. That does it for this episode of believe in nets on the believe podcast network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. Hope you guys enjoyed the intro, the interview with Lucas, all of it. If you did, make sure to subscribe on all streaming platforms at Believe in Nets, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Smash the like button, leave a review, five stars if you can. That goes a long way. Really appreciate that. You guys can find all of my work on ClutchPoints.com at uh, Eric Slater. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Slater underscore constant news updates analysis on everything Nets. Really hope you guys enjoyed this. I'll be back soon with some more Nets coverage as they transition into a slightly easier part of their schedule. Hope we Hopefully we see some better basketball, maybe even some high-level basketball, and I'll have more coverage of it for you guys along the way. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.